We've got a new episode of Swings and Mishes on deck with a lot happening this week with the Miami Marlins. And those of you who are looking to purchase a pre-owned vehicle, I want to encourage you to go to this website, happycarsflorida.com, or go visit the inventory there at 203 West State Road 84 in Fort Lauderdale, 33315. The phone number is 954-745-9599. You've heard me talk about Happy Cars Florida, now all 2019, and the deals that they have going on right now are unbelievable. And better yet, if you want to buy any kind of car, for you or your loved one, call Louie at 954-745-9599 and say that you heard about this on the Swings and Mishes podcast and that Craig sent you directly. He will get you into any car that you want. Louie is unbelievable. He's been involved in car buying and car selling for over two decades here in South Florida. and He can get you exactly what you want. I've been buying cars directly from Louie as well. So you can trust him and head on over there. He does all the financing in-house. Whether or not you have good credit, bad credit, or even no credit whatsoever, he will take care of you. Again, financing done on the site there. 203 West State Road 84 in Fort Lauderdale. That is happycarsflorida.com. Make sure you give him a call. 954-745-9599. Hello, baseball fans, and welcome back to another episode of Swings and Mishes. We are happy to be back with you once again here in 2020 as we're getting riled up as spring training for the Miami Marlins is just about a month away. I mean, that's where we're at at this point. It's pretty crazy. I am your producer, Jeremy Taché, joined as always by the man behind this podcast, Craig Mish. Craig, how are you doing on this fine morning? I'm doing well, Jeremy. It's great to be back. We are closing in on the end of the NFL season. We had a uh, exciting Monday night game, I thought, between uh, Clemson and LSU. And mm-hmm. now we're headed really toward baseball season here with the championship games in the NFL coming up this weekend. And then, of course, the Super Bowl here in South Florida. We'll all be consumed with that. But the second that's over, that's it. I mean, it really is baseball time after that. And certainly we've had so much news in baseball over the last 48 hours, non-Marlins related. It's been, it's been kind of wild to see all of this happening. And a lot of South Florida ties, obviously, to, to, uh, to all this stuff um, as it pertains to it. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But, you know, A.J. Hinch is somebody that I've gotten to know very well through the years, uh, covering him at the uh, ballpark of the Palm Beaches with the Houston Astros. Jeff Luno's come on uh, many of my shows in the past, too. Alex Cora, of course, went to the University of Miami. Mm-hmm. So um, gotten to know these guys through the years, but certainly a, uh, a very, very bad situation in baseball that they are cleaning up. And fortunately, from the Marlins' perspective, nothing to worry about amongst that. And we could just move on from that. And good news, in fact, for the Marlins organization and their front office. Right. Well, and and we could just get right into that. Greg, you and I were talking a bit before the show, talking about the front office and, and some extensions that have come within the front office. So could you detail uh, what is going on in the Marlins' front office in terms of this positivity? Sure. Well, I mean, at this point, it, it appears as though uh, the uh, the CEO of the Marlins, Derek Jeter, and, and uh, President Michael Hill are happy with the progress that is being made by the organization. I think that that goes without saying when you do this sort of thing. And from what I am told and from what I understand, uh, virtually all of the top level front office staff was not just extended through 2020, 
but also through 2021. Hmm. So uh, when you look at it at this point, this basically puts uh, virtually all the people who are the decision makers in charge an additional year. Uh, it, it gives them all of 2021 too to basically see this through. So um, congratulations to all of those guys. And certainly the way that this works for people who may not understand this is that Mike Hill as president of baseball operations essentially oversees the baseball operations department, the front office, and he determines who in the front office staff would this would happen to, who'd be eligible to receive an extension. And then at that point, what he does is he reports to uh, Derek Jeter, the Marlins owner and chief operating officer, and then Derek Jeter signs off on this. And so uh, you can go basically and look at all the Marlins front office members and take a look at it and go name by name. From what I understand, they've all been given uh, contract extensions at the top level through 2021. Mm -hmm. That, of course, includes uh, the assistant general manager, Brian Chatton, and many of the others. So they will be part of the, of the Miami Marlins organization, not just in 2020, but also in 2021. So this would clearly signify that the club is very happy with the direction that it has gone so far. We've seen uh, half a dozen of the top prospects in baseball enter into the top 100 in all of the prospect lists. They are now at the point of the development, which is, of course, Vice President Gary Denbo involved in that as well. So uh, they seem to be headed in the right direction in the, on the development side. Now we're going to find out how much improvement is done on the major league side. But I believe, and this is my opinion, that this is sort of a reward for all of the things that have happened behind the scenes to get Miami to this point. So it would be a little silly if they didn't have contracts, most of these guys especially, through 2021, because uh, you know the 2020 season, while it's supposed to be at the major league side better, than what it was last year, really 2021 at this point appears to be the year where that real big jump hypothetically could happen if all goes right. So uh, that is the big news on our uh, podcast today. And, and certainly if anything like this happens, you know that I will attempt to be the first one to bring it to you. But in closing, uh, the front office of the Miami Marlins, all their top baseball operations, key people are all going to be with the club through 2021. Uh, if not, <laughs> they'll owe them money in 2021. That's basically the way that it would work. Right, exactly. And, and so you mentioned that with all of those key executives and that Mike Hill is a huge part in deciding who then gets those extensions. But what's Mike Hill's status himself? I know his contract is actually up before that. Yeah, so that, that's the interesting part of the dynamic is, is Mike's deal is up after this year. And so, uh, you know, Mike essentially, along with, uh, Derek Jeter are giving extensions even beyond through uh, where Mike is is technically employed mm -hmm. with the Marlins and so uh, in my estimation at this point it, it appears to be that they're kind of handling this a little bit like they handled Don Mattingly as manager where I think okay. that they're going to let the big league side play itself out this year to see what because Mike's while Mike is president of, of everything that goes on uh, you know, I, I think that they're probably looking for an improvement on the major league side. And a lot of the acquisitions that Mike has made, I would probably say in the history of them, this has probably been maybe his best year or two as president of the Miami Marlins. I, I really do feel that way. And I do think that he deserves to stay on board. It may not be the most popular opinion, but 
he now has help from the analytics side, from the baseball ops side, and from everyone else involved. He's able to make his own moves. He's able to have his own voice. And I think that the results are, take a look at how many prospects they've brought in. Inevitably, Mike is a great negotiator. Rival executives who I talk to all say the same thing about him. Hmm. And so what it could be, Jeremy, and I'm just speculating this, and this is, this is you know, again, some speculation here, and I, I can't get confirmation on this one way or the other. But my guess is, is that remember when Mike was given this deal, he was given it uh, by Jeffrey Lurie, the right. former president of the Marlins. And for all the, uh, for the owner of the Marlins, excuse me, along with David Sampson, president of the Marlins. So for all the negative things that are said about uh, Jeffrey and David, the one thing that is unequivocally true is that they took very good care of, of the people who worked for the Marlins. They did. Mm. They paid them. They overpaid them. Internally, they took very good care of them. I've heard this from virtually everyone. So that is something that can't be disputed. The baseball ops side, we can dispute and do a million podcasts, a million yeah. shows on this. All the, all the wrong decisions they made on the baseball side, we can do a million of those. Right. They paid their employees. They were very nice to them. They took care of them. I believe that there is a chance that perhaps, and I don't know exactly what it is, that perhaps uh, Mike's salary is not in line currently with what a uh, the top five, top 10 president of baseball operations is. And I'm not saying that Mike is or isn't that, but I know for a fact that at the time that he was given that deal, he was paid and, and is paid very well to do mm -hmm. his job. Uh, I'm not saying that, he is in line to continue or not. That's not a decision that I would make. I'm not saying that he's going to have to take less money to stay with the Marlins in the future, but I think that all options there are on the table and it certainly wouldn't surprise me if the finances of that somewhat were involved in this because there's been a lot of baseball presidents in the last 10 years that have come and gone and Mike Hill has actually been a reigning president of the Marlins right. for a long period of time here. And so maybe there's a negotiation. Maybe there's something going on. Uh, I think Mike is going to stay. I think Mike is going to continue to be president. But that will just have to be a decision that's made at the end of the year. And clearly, I think that, look, I mean, Mike knows this too. If the team lost 110 games this season, I don't think Mike is going to be back. I mean, that's right. They, they have to get a little bit better this year. They can't take another step backward. I don't think that would be acceptable. So, if all goes well and they play and they win their, you know, 65 games, 66, 67, 70, whatever, the, yeah. whatever that number is, as long as that happens and the development side continues to go what it is, I would guess that at the end of the season or maybe even sooner we'd hear about it. Or, you know, they did all this very quietly. Maybe we won't. Maybe I'll be that one that's going <laughs> to have to tell you this. I don't know. Right. But I would guess that uh, they'll sit – that uh, uh, Derek Jeter, uh, Bruce Sherman, will sit down with Mike and – determine where they're going to go with this and negotiate a new contract with Mike Hill at the end of the season. But remember, very few holdovers from the Loria-Sampson regime at the highest levels of this organization. Uh, in terms of that hierarchy, I believe it is Mike Hill and Assistant General Manager Brian Chatton. I think that's it. I mean, there, there are a few guys who are still at higher levels of the front office, but like those are like the only real high-level decision-makers that have made it through to this point. So right. uh, we'll have to see, and, and if I get anything on that, certainly I'll update you on the podcast. But, uh, yeah, Mike's deal is up after the end of this year, and all the people that he and uh, 
Derek extended or through 2021. So interesting dynamic they have going on right now. Well, we'll see if those end up uh, syncing up together. But using the word stability and the Miami Marlins front office has not been something that we are used to doing. And so hearing some of that uh, is exciting from, from a Marlins fan perspective. And so moving on to actually what some of the fans can expect, you were up at Roger Dean Stadium yesterday. Um, and before we get into you know anything about that hitter's camp, we'll come back to that in a minute, uh, what was actually happening in those batting cages. Uh, Roger Dean Stadium, we've talked about before on this podcast, is due to get sort of a facelift in the next couple of years. But is there any sort of renovation that's happened for this year specifically that the fans can expect to see as they head up to Jupiter? Yeah, I have mixed emotions on this one a little bit because I've I've illustrated how big a fan I am of of spring training and and how much I enjoy going to games. Um, my son is now of the age where he is starting to enjoy doing it. As a, as a kid, I, I used to go to Fort Lauderdale Stadium and, and follow the Orioles and Pompano Park. People forget the Rangers played there for a year in West Palm Beach with the Braves. And the, uh, and the Expos played for many years. And that fan experience is something that I'm always very big on at that time of the year. I, I think that if you expect a fan experience during a major league game from April to September, you're being a little silly. I mean, these guys are there to work. I understand that, that, that players and teams have to be fan-friendly. But the regular season is, is, to me, I don't care what park you're playing in, it's really not the time for that. Spring training is the time for that. The players have been off for months uh, from a media and fan perspective. They're very interested in talking. They're very interested in signing autographs. They just haven't done it for a long period of time. And that wears out thin. And that's why you get to June and July and it's, it's not quite the same feel because they're just getting bombarded constantly. So I'm very hesitant to take that away from the fan experience. So that being said at Roger Dean stadium, what's more important as we've seen is the safety of kids that are at the park at, and, and adults that are at the park at uh, Roger Dean Chevrolet stadium. So I completely get what they are doing, uh, which is basically uh, for people who don't know. Um, and you know, maybe you wouldn't cause I'm, the first one to tell you is that they are extending the netting for safety procedures about 30 feet up and down the line, both on the Cardinal side and on the Marlins side. Hmm. And so as someone who has been to that stadium for 20 years, my first worry was what is this going to do? Uh, you know, first of all, it needs to be done. Let me, let me not make any mistake about what I'm saying here because it has to be done. I mean, you, you, you have to protect Absolutely. fans. This young girl who got hurt, um, I believe it was in Houston having all kinds of seizures and issues like that. Like I am completely on board with this, but at the same time, I would love, I was loving to know how is this going to affect the fan experience? Cause if you have netting all up and down the line, this is a big deterrent pregame for, uh, for players to come over and sign. And I'm very familiar with both sides of that park, both the Cardinals and the Marlins. And so uh, from what I understand, for those of you who have, been to Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium, and I'll be quick with this because I know some of you who live in South Florida don't go, is that over on the Marlin side, there's kind of like an open-ended veranda that is still going to remain that way. So uh, there okay. still will be plenty of opportunity for, as the Marlins come in, and they come in from left field, basically, to walk all the way up until that point where the uh, netting will be now they still could certainly come over even through the netting and figure out a way to interact with the fans and I'm hopeful that that will still happen because the Marlins are probably one of the most fan-friendly teams that I've ever encountered in covering baseball in uh, in 20 years they've made it a, a point like in these meetings to make sure that they do it which is unheard of 
Uh, but netting is a deterrent to that, of course. Let's not, you know, you know Don Mattingly, typically pregame before every Marlins game goes over and goes right by the dugout and signs autograph for like 15 minutes, like every single game. Mm. I mean, I've been there with my son. I've yep. seen this before. So uh, I'm told that that's not going to change. So, uh, you know, basically where the bullpen area is, it will still be open. It will still be clear. And pregame, it will be no deterrent whatsoever on the Miami side. Now, on the Cardinals side, this could be a little bit different because, indeed, that, that netting is going to, from what I'm told, go all the way up until basically that right field, which will indeed uh, cover the entire outfield, the baseline, and even uh, the bullpen. So uh, I don't know what will happen on the Cardinals end of this. It seems like it's not as great of a situation on their side as it is for Miami side. Their players in particular before the game also have been fantastic in the past. So hopefully nothing changes. Safety is of the utmost importance and I completely get that. But the fan experience to me is almost as important during that time of the year for spring training. So I'm hopeful that we can be safe in Jupiter, but we can also not lose sight of the fan experience. Cause let's be honest, Jeremy guys are there to work. Guys right. are there to make the team, but the games don't count. Let's not make more of this than it is. These games do not count. They don't mean anything. This is the time for fans to be able to meet their heroes. And I just, I want to make sure that that stays the same if it's possible. Right. And, and seemingly it is so, uh, and knowing that, that fan safety has been a priority at Roger Dean is, is certainly uh, a plus knowing that going forward um, you talk about the Marlins you talk about the Cardinals you talk about Roger Dean so I think that's the right transition to move over to Austin Dean oh no uh, you gotta do it huh earlier in the week oh uh, no Austin Dean was designated for assignment by the Marlins and now as of yesterday Austin Dean was traded for Dio Will Burgos to the St. Louis Cardinals uh, our mm. Dean machine, tough one. Moving over to the other side of Roger Dean Stadium uh, for spring training. Uh, Craig, the floor is yours. I mean, uh, what to say about Austin? Yeah, he was our college football analyst, among other things. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we can circle back here a little bit. I was uh, caught by surprise for sure when they designated him for assignment. I'm not 100% sure how this went down. I know I'm the percentage guy. Hmm. I think that they had somebody else designated, and they pivoted, and they DFA'd him. I, I, th I think they changed their mind on this. I don't know. Maybe they'll admit it to me at some point. But I, I think somebody else, uh, they were going to DFA, and they didn't, and then they pivoted to D. And maybe I'll get yelled at and say that's not the case. But I'm going. That's the story I'm going with. <laughs> uh, and, and so they did. They have a crunch in the outfield. They have a lot of kids who they like better than Austin. That's just it. They, they have a lot of outfielders that they like better than Austin for sure. And make no mistake about it, you have two outfielders that, on the, that are on the roster in Lewis Brinson and Magnera Sierra who are on their last shot with Miami. There's, mm. there's no doubt about that. I mean, Brinson at this point, I mean, this is it. Uh, you know, I, I mean, who knows? He may not even get a shot this spring. Who knows? We'll have to see. And in terms of Sierra, he's got no options. So they were going to lose him entirely. So they decided, hey, look, we like, you know, Sanchez and Gia Encarnacion. And we got Monte Harrison healthy coming back here. And, you know, Brian Anderson can play the outfield. We got to put Coop sometimes in the outfield. 
And let's not forget Harold Ramirez, who they also like more than Austin Dean. So, um, you know, they wanted him on the team. And then I think, unfortunately, for the Dean machine, once they signed Matt Kemp to a non-roster invitee, even though they're, they won't say it publicly, I think that kind of, you know, if, if there is going to be anybody platooning with Corey Dickerson in left field, and I do think some of that's going to go on, by the way. Uh, somebody against lefties, I think that they're looking for Kemp to make the team. So that was it. So that was it for, uh, for Austin. They designated him for assignment. A few days went by. He was very crushed and upset, as any player would be. You can imagine growing up your whole entire life wanting to play Major League Baseball. You get very sporadic opportunities. Sometimes you make the most of it. Sometimes you don't. And then you're told the team that you know developed you, drafted you, brought you up doesn't want you anymore. I can only imagine. That's got to be crushing for, for, to have your dreams basically crushed in a phone call, mm. which is what definitely happened with, uh, with Austin. But, uh, you know, the morning comes and then you, you take a couple of days to think about it and you realize, you know, maybe I'll end up with another team. Maybe there'll be a better opportunity. And then yesterday, uh, I think I, I broke the news maybe a minute before it came out. There wasn't much time there. Maybe they tried to beat me. I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, but, but Austin was traded to the Cardinals. And you mentioned the player they got in return who we'll talk about briefly here. And so what does this do? Why did the Cardinals acquire Austin? Well, they, they recently – uh, you know, at this point, at least, they let Marcelo Zuna go. I mean, he could end up going back. But again, they offered him the qualifying offer. He did not accept it. They also traded Jose Martinez. And then more importantly, they also traded Randy Rosarina in the deal that had Jose Martinez go to Tampa Bay. So as, as much depth as the Cardinals had in the outfield, they really didn't have a lot. Now, that could change. If they bring Ozuna back, that, that you know, could hurt Austin in, in St. Louis. But for now... He stands with a pretty good opportunity, I think, to get uh, a good look in spring training. There's rosters are now, Jeremy, at 26. Mm. Perhaps perhaps he's a 25th or 26th man, a fourth or maybe even a starting outfielder. Who knows? He's going to have a better chance in St. Louis than he did here. And in Memphis, if he ends up there, he's got two options left. And I think that was a big part of why the Cardinals acquired him. There's no pressure. He can have a great spring training, an okay spring training. Who knows? But at the end... They, if he has a great spring training, they put him on the team. If not, they don't have any depth in Memphis. He could play first. He could play the outfield. Break there. Something happens. Gets called up. We've seen some of the kids on the Cardinals get hurt through the years, Tyler O'Neill being one of them. Mm. Uh, you know, Austin could certainly fit in well there. So a better situation, as it turns out, I think, for him there than in Miami. There were at least a handful of teams that were interested in, uh, in acquiring him, and it is my understanding, and I want to give uh, the Marlins a lot of credit here, is that uh, you know, sometimes you have a choice in this situation when you designate someone for assignment, Jeremy, and certainly the Marlins want to do the best for their organization, okay? Like, they, the kid they acquired, who we'll talk about, that was indeed the best deal that they had on the table. But they also, I believe, felt somewhat of a little bit of an obligation to do their best to do right by Austin Dean, to send him to a place that gave him an opportunity to succeed. Now, I don't know what those other teams were. At some point, if I do, we'll bring it up here. But they, that was maybe a very small percent, but part of the conversation is doing right by a good kid. So I was very happy to hear that as well. So they sent him to St. Louis. Jeremy, the kid they get back in return in the trade, a lot of mixed opinions on this, a very young player. So there should be a million mixed opinions on this. Jeremy, you played right. high school baseball. I'm sure that there were a lot yeah. of mixed opinions on you when you were that age. Now we know who you are. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, now we know you. We didn't know you back then. So this kid, maybe you, wish you, maybe you still wish, you, but <laughs> that's another conversation for another time. 
Yeah, so this kid in the Dominican Republic in the uh, Dominican Summer League was amazing. And then if I'm not mistaken, and they, and they were thinking, my gosh, this is going to be like a top five prospect in the Cardinal system. They signed him for like 300 grand. And then he came to the States and he was the opposite of amazing. Mm. So no one really knows. He's too young to know what this kid is. We don't know. He's very young. Is it a dart throw? Probably so. Could be great. Could be done. But that's the way that this works with the international market. You really don't know. So Miami is hoping to get him into their system, develop him in their system, and do some of the things that they feel works and get him to the point where potentially he can be a big league player. So uh, I've got very random and very varying opinions on this player that they've acquired, and that is indeed how it should be when you're 16 or 17 or 18 years old. It's just too young to determine right now. So we'll check back on this kid in a couple years. All right. Well, that was uh, certainly a lot of emotion as well as uh, analysis. Oh, oh, it was a tough one. It was it's tough. tough. And let, let me just say real quick on, on, on Austin myself, I just so enjoyed watching, especially during spring training, the way that Austin interacted with fans. Uh, it's fitting that sort of his final moment in a Marlins uniform was the knocking down of all the, the beer cans up in left field, yeah. uh, you know, interacting with fans, being sort of a positive force on that team as a, you know, sort of clubhouse guy, quote unquote. Uh, and I just really enjoyed interacting with him as a member of the media. He's a good dude and we wish him all the best out in St. Louis. So, uh, Austin, our college football analyst, uh, fitting also that on the week that college football comes to an end, Austin would yeah. be would be sent away the, from the Marlins. The, the one the one thing that I could say that you write about spring training too, and the one thing you know, going back to the fan experience that I would say about him and having a lot of experience covering both mm-hmm. the Marlins and Cardinals in spring training is, and I know I have quite a bit of Cardinals uh, fans and you know people that listen to this, is that if you go to spring training this year. And you go and you go over on the Cardinals side, by the way, the Cardinals have their own side at, at uh, Roger and Chevrolet stadium. Uh, if you go to spring training and you do not get Austin Dean's autograph, you simply were not trying. Like you yeah. simply did not bring something <laughs> to, to have him <laughs> exactly. sign. Like there will be no excuse. Like you, right. I want someone to message me that goes to spring training yeah. uh, at Craig Bish on Twitter and you get through your day and you did not get, uh, an interaction, a picture, an autograph, or something with Austin Dean, then you did not go. <laughs> yeah, you were purposely there, trying not to. There was no proof of that in existence. That's how nice uh, Austin is. So, you know, certainly I wish him the best. I could, I'm thrilled for him, and I'm thrilled for his future. And now uh, I'm thrilled for him and his family, too. Great mm-hmm. family. Um, so I, I certainly wish him all the best and it it does make me a little bit happy that for a month he'll still be right around the corner here so i'll I'll have some interaction i'm sure with him it's almost felt like an in memoriam uh we talked about austin and his interaction with uh the fans at spring training and i I think that's probably a good transition to talk about fan fest uh which is coming up in a couple of weeks and maybe some players that that we could see at fan fest that aren't yet with the marlins uh is there a chance that the Marlins do sign another player, maybe another reliever? We've continued to talk about this off the show, on the show, talking about relievers, maybe even another outfielder. Are there any sort of thoughts as to players that, that could be with the Marlins maybe by the time FanFest does come around? Yeah, I mean, fantasy baseball and reality baseball are two different things. So I'm not going to pretend to, even though I've covered baseball 
as long or longer than anybody else in South Florida. I'm not going to pretend to know what they should or shouldn't do. And I'm not big on spending money in the bullpen, but I don't think the Marlins can go into the season without having somebody that has ninth inning experience. Mm. Uh, you know, Don Mattingly, the manager of the Marlins, he can say whatever he wants to us throughout spring training. And I look forward to him saying that he's going to use different guys. He never is. He does not. He's the same guy in the ninth. This has been going on for years. So, um, you know, the proof is in the, is in the results. The proof is in the actions. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that's the way that he wants to operate, he's used to doing that. He had a guy in LA in Jansen. He had a guy last year in Romo last year or two years ago. Uh, he tried Ziegler at the beginning of the season. Ziegler was better for the eighth. He went to Barraclaw, used him. He uses one guy. He says he uses a lot of guys. He does not. He uses <laughs> one guy. Uh, who is that guy? They, they need to have someone with experience closing games, even if it's not a lot. Someone with the stomach to do it. Someone right. with the mentality to do it. And I don't care who that is, but they cannot go into the season making the assumption that any of the current players on the roster can do it because none of them have. You're going, that means you're basically going into the year with a, with a position or something that you need that there is zero experience of success. None on any player on the Marlins roster. I mean, Ryan Cook had like a year, maybe like seven years ago, where he saved some games for Oakland. And he was pretty good. I remember this from fantasy, of course. I mean, that's, yeah. that's not – that's not, and maybe he will succeed, but that is – I should not be the game plan going in to uh, 2020. I've made that clear. Right. So I'm guessing that there are not a lot of names left out there that have that experience, but I'm guessing that there will be someone either on a non-roster invitee or on a one-year deal for a million or two that will be brought in and they'll uh, compete for the ninth inning role. That's what I'm kind of understanding is that that's, it's still going to be a competition no matter who they bring in. The same names that are still out there are Brandon Kitzler and Pedro Strope. I, you know, the other day I heard David Phelps's name brought up as a possibility and mm -hmm. making him, into that closer in the ninth inning. But the other thing that they're up against is, uh, you know, these players right now, Jeremy, if they have a chance to play for the Twins or if they have a chance to play for the Yankees, you right. know, or the Dodgers, and then, you know, it's the same money with the Marlins, no disrespect to the Marlins, but you're at the end of your career, you're Pedro Strope, you're Kinsler, you're in your 30s, you're like, this is my last shot. I mean, I probably would understand if they wanted to sign with a team that had a better chance to win this year. So mm. they were very fortunate to get Romo last year, that Romo wanted to come over and help develop kids. Romo also wasn't coming off a great year either, like he was this year. So uh, I will say that I don't know by FanFest, but I think that by the time camp opens, they'll have a veteran with some closing experience. Maybe not a lot, but with some. And if they don't, then that's the direction that they choose to go. And it'll be something that I think is a massive mistake going into the 2020 season. Well, we've certainly been hammering that home here on this podcast for sure. You, you've been very consistent on, on that. And you're right. I mean, the mental side of things is so important. Yogi Berra said 90% of the game is half mental. Uh, and that is so important when it comes to a closer. So uh, before we get to your interview with Peyton Burdick, uh, of the Marlins farm system. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that hitters camp that we were referencing earlier at Roger Dean stadium that you were at this week. Uh, you and many other media members, uh, how did that Marlins hitting camp with a little excitement around these, uh, prospects. And so what were your main takeaways from that day? Who do we get to talk to? You know, what were you seeing up there in Jupiter? My main takeaway is I needed to see a baseball field and some sun. 
Oh. And so I drove up there just for that. <laughs> right? Absolutely. I, mean, really I, I missed it. There was, there was really nothing else happening. I mean, they, uh, they were hitting in cages. It was good to see, you know, the players there. Uh, you know, some guy I, – I can't put too much into what I'm seeing in a closed uh, batting practice sure. of anything. So the brief takeaways are just to, you know, take you a little bit behind the curtain. Isan Diaz was there working on defense in the outfield. Isan Diaz does not need to be in Jupiter at this point. It is January 15th. So feel good about that. If you're an Isan Diaz fan, you're a Marlins fan. I specifically saw him in the outfielder. I think I saw him doing like some of those Ron Washington drills where they're on their knees and they were just passing him the ball. I could be wrong about that. I wasn't paying that close attention. Hmm. Uh, Monte Harrison, who uh, has had his share of injuries over the last few years. I had a very nice conversation with Monte, just kind of going over some of the events of last year which I'll keep private with me and him, but um, we had a good conversation and uh, he assured me that he's 100% healthy going into 2020, which I posted yesterday and, uh, and he retweeted on top of that. So we'll hope for some good health for Monte because we would love to see him and see what he can do, not just at the big league level, but play you know, three straight months or four straight months in the minors without any injuries. So that would right. certainly be important there. He was not part of the hitters camp. Jazz Chisholm was there. He was not part of the hitters camp. But as we'll hear uh, from Peyton Burdick, with Peyton Burdick there from the draft and J.J. Bladé, their first-round pick, and Gira Encarnacion, who is developing at a very fast pace and, was, and played very well at the Arizona Fall League, he could potentially be in the mix for the Marlins in a year or two. Uh, I, I think that uh, for those guys, it certainly is important to get a little bit of a head start because they're younger players. But as we'll hear in the interview coming up with Peyton Burdick, who was drafted uh, by the Marlins in the fourth round from Wright State, the uh, the captain's camp, Derek Jeter's captain's camp is coming up in two weeks. So uh, the key members of Miami's organization will all be there. So those are all the positives that I would say from that. On this podcast, we bring you everything. So, of course, not going to sugarcoat anything. Uh, you know, Victor Mesa Jr. seems to be also on a faster track. And, and as a wonderful personality, by the way, uh, interacting with media and as a player, still very young, but we'll certainly see. Uh, Victor Victor, on the other hand, you know, I, I think is, is interesting because a lot of uh, excuses are being made for him for last year, and some of them are fair. He came over from, uh, from Cuba, clearly, with not an understanding how Major League Baseball works, how Minor League Baseball works. He had a lot of injuries, one key one in the spring that derailed him almost immediately yeah. until the end. Several nagging injuries also. Uh, very poor statistically in his minor league stints. Unimpressive after that, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in the Arizona Fall League. And so what we're hearing is a lot of, oh, it's transition. And, and, you know, those things are all very fair for a player in their first year. Uh, but I would like to see no more excuses on that this year. The Marlins went out and spent $5 million on this player and made a big deal uh, in the international signing period that look at who we got. We got Victor Victor. Everybody right. wanted him, and we got him too. Uh, I'm not saying that, that you need a gauntlet thrown down like a Brinson where it's do or die here. The, the, the kid is still in his first or second year, but he's also not 19 or 20 or 21 or 22 or 23. Right. You know, like he is a player that needs to be developed on the fast track. And his, uh, and, and I just think that there's gotta be a little bit of a jump from to something this year for him. And I'm willing to 
from my opinion, to allow all of those sort of narratives and excuses be legitimate for last year um, in his transition coming to the United States and playing in, in minor league ball, pro ball. But I would, I would like to see verbally, and I would like to see the Marlins make more of an emphasis on, hey, like this is a year that we got to you know, see a little bit more from this player. And I think that that part of that, by the way, is up to the player. Part of that is up to Victor Victor to, to get himself on the field more and get him healthier. So, again, the way that we cover this thing here is uh, this is, you know, as much as I'm a, you know, it's important for the Marlins to succeed for this podcast and there to be interest because we are driven by sponsors here. That's how right. we get this done is that we are getting paid to do this. As I've said to everyone who's ever listened to this before, we cover it from all angles. It's not always going to be 100% positive. There has to be things covered fairly, and that's the way that I'm going to do this. And so that's the way that we'll end it there. So now we can end <laughs> with, with the most positive of all, Peyton Burdick, who yep. uh, I had a chance to catch up with, who, who the fans are going to really like a lot. This is a very engaging young man who I've, I've yet to, to, in the last few years, with what I, my takeaway from him before we hit the interview, I haven't had a player at his age, at this level, engage me more than I've engaged him. Meaning that he asked me more questions uh, from a personal point of view. How did I get into broadcasting? Um, I was talking about my son to him. Like I, that, that's a rare thing to have to answer questions back to a player. Usually it's you're the one that's engaging and asking all the questions. But to have this young man ask me a lot of questions was refreshing and showed me that this person is engaged. So I think, I think that if this kid hits, I think this is going to be a big, big player in the, in the Marlins organization. And so uh, hopefully that comes through in the interview. Yeah, this past draft seems to be full of really personable players. Oh, yes. and, and for that matter, you know, the trade for Jazz Chisholm. Jazz Chisholm is an incredibly oh, personable guy, too. So if all these guys do, you know, we, we've talked over and over and over about how not every prospect ends up working out. We all have our high expectations. But knowing the personality behind some of these guys and the way that they've played thus far as they've entered the organization, it is exciting. Peyton Burdick is one of those guys, and you will get to hear from him right now, only on Swings and Missions. So, uh, let's talk about the winter. Talk to me about your family, what you guys did, and uh, what the last few months have been like. Uh, it's been fun. You know, I've just been in the weight room, um, kind of working on my own with all the other pro guys in our area. But uh, over the break, I had to spend a lot of time with my family, and family's important to me. Uh, got to spend a lot of time at home doing fun things, doing some fun family Christmas stuff with extended family and our close family. So it was real uh, relaxing to get to be with them and spend time with them after being gone for so long. Now, you had said that, that when you got drafted that you had no idea where you were going to go. Right. I'm sure you anticipated getting drafted by somebody, but it ended up being the Marlins. So how different is it being part of a major league organization where – you're wearing Marlins gear. You're aware for the last six months that you're going to be on the Marlins with the Marlins, and what has that come with? Uh, it's just a, a blessing to be able to get the opportunity to play at the next level because you train your whole life to get to put yourself in a good position to be successful. And um, I just got lucky, I guess, because the draft, you never know how it's going to work. And I was luckily I was selected by the Marlins, you know, a great place. Um, with Derek Jeter coming in, everybody – sees that and they always want to go there and 
um, it's just nice being in a, a good place um, like the Marlins in Miami. Now, what it, what, when you were in college, I know that you mentioned that you haven't had a chance quite yet to finish your, your studies right. there. Uh, when you're in college and you're playing four years, I know that your goals are to to play in the big leagues, right. but what else is Peyton Burdick about? Like, what, what did you go through in college? What did you study? What did you like? So to start off, uh, I was in uh, business with economics, and uh, I really liked it. It was really fun, and then I ended up having Tommy John after my freshman year, uh, which caused me to miss the whole my whole sophomore year. Um, so I was in business with economics, and I was doing rehab and all that good stuff, and then I had to take all these like time-consuming classes, and um, I really knew that it was my dream from being a little kid to, to play professional baseball, and you only have a short uh, time period to be able to do that. And that's when I ended up switching my major to communications with the minor in marketing to basically give me myself more free time, have a little bit of the business aspect in with my major. Um, and then I got to go back and finish that um, probably next off season. And the Marlins are allowing you to do that, right? That's, right. that's part of the deal with the Marlins. Um, Wright State, people do not know a lot about this university. And in general, there have been some nice players that have come through systems, mm-hmm. but I could make the case that most average baseball fans would not know a thing about where Wright State is, who has played there, and kind of what the school is all about. So how would you describe playing there and your experience there? Uh, I, first off, I would say if you go up in the Midwest, I think everybody knows who Wright State is. Uh, we've kind of made a name for ourselves. But um, we'll go back to what you're saying with the well, I, I think that in general, I disagree. Right. I, I think that may, it right. may be in the Midwest. Right. But I think even in South Florida, uh, Wright State may have a good program. Right. But it's not like there's a pipeline. Well, now there is. Yeah. But, <laughs> there <you go laughs> but, <laughs> but there wasn't before you and J.D. Orr uh, a real – well, there, actually, there's before that. Yeah, Sean Murphy. Yeah, big right. Oh, well, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so there's not a huge pipeline right, right. Of, of players uh, coming from, from Wright State. So you're out to change that, right. obviously. So what is playing for that university all about? And magically, how did the Marlins end up with two guys from that school? Um, I don't think – so Wright State, we like to call ourselves the biggest blue-collar school in America. And basically you go in there, you don't have the best facilities, but you have great coaches, you have great sports staff, like great athletic department. They supply you with anything you need. They let, like make your whole experience the best it can be. And it's just when we go in there, it's just engraved in us to to just go in there and work and just work, work, work. And you get these guys that they are flying under the radar out of high school, but they're real big athletes, like multiple sports. Um, get in there, get in the weight room, really learn how to play baseball and then develop our craft. So all props to the coaches for setting up a system, going back to Rob Cooper, to Greg Lovelady, to Coach Mercer, to – Coach Tallarico and Coach Sogar, Coach Metzger, like all those guys, they just kept the same plan in. And guys go in there, they develop, they have a plan. They do it, the process, everything, the whole nine yards, and it just develops those guys. And it's just been real successful. You've seen a lot of guys get drafted out of there the last five or six years. And, um, yeah, it's pretty much taught me who I am today. It's really easy to find a scouting report on you. It's not as easy to find a scouting report on J.D. Orr, who was your teammate mm-hmm. and who is now part of the Marlins organization as well. So give me the scouting report on J.D. Orr. What can fans expect? Uh, very little-known player, a lot of speed. I, I don't know a lot else, and I don't think a lot of other people do. So give us your scouting report, your communications major, so you should be able to handle that. <laughs> so me and J.D., we go back to freshman year, and he's been my, one of my good friends. So um, 
about him, I would say he's complete opposite of me. He's if we went on a vacation, he'd rather go up in in a cabin out in the woods than go out to the beach. You know, he likes being to himself. He's a he's a hunter. Um, in the scouting reports, you can see fast guy. That's, that's the best piece I got for you. Fast guy uh, hits the ball, runs, knows what he's doing. Real real veteran player. Um, he knows what his strengths are. Um, he hits it and runs, and that's the best part to his game. He steals a lot of bases too. All right, now for my embarrassing part of the interview, where I start calling you muscular and thick. <laughs> And I sound like, you know, like I'm, I'm diving into your body parts here, which is not really what I'm doing. But that's, that's part of the next question is that's kind of what you're, you're known for. You're known for being uh, a strength guy, weight guy. I think you've been described as thick in mm-hmm. some other places too. Um, how much of that is part of, of who you are in the weight room and perfecting your physique if it's not going too far? Right. I think it just comes from my dad because my dad played uh, football in college and uh, he ended up signing as a free agent to the Seattle Seahawks for like a year and then got released because he's too slow. So he's always been a bigger guy. And then I have an older brother. He's in the Marines. He works out a lot. So it's like I don't want to look like the shrimp of the family. So, you know, I got to keep – got to pull my weight around the family. But um, after that, like when I had Tommy John, I really invested myself in the weight room. And I knew investing myself in the weight room would pay off for me because I was a little bit smaller than everybody else coming out of high school. Um, and I knew I had to do something to kind of separate myself from other people. And um, I just saw the opportunity in the weight room, and I'd work out 10 to 14 times a week during my off-season, either once a day or twice every day. And I would just try to get them all in, and it was, it was tough. I grinded it out, but here I am today. You're trying to shame me <laughs> and everybody else 10 to 14 times a week. Yeah. Well, when you can't practice or anything, it's the only thing you can do. So you just go in there, do some arm care with your trainer, and then go over to the weight room. And Bright State just made it easy for us, so. I just sit on the couch. Okay, so um, so let's kind of move forward here. Actually, you know, let's go back for one second. So when when most players, non pitchers, have Tommy John surgery, I've heard from different players that sometimes there's that fear. Oh my gosh, is my career over? Will I ever be the same? When you were going through that, was that ever part of the conversation with a serious injury like that, where you miss so much time that wow, my career could be in somewhat jeopardy if this doesn't go right? Uh, I mean, I, I guess it's always in the back of your mind, um, but I try not to think about it too much. I try to focus on what's ahead of me versus what is happening to me. Or I like to be in the moment and not worry about what's in the past, you know, because that's always in your the back of your head. But it's like I did all the rehab, I did all the work, so I should be fine. And um, Dr. Kremchek um, at Beacon, he's a great surgeon. He's known for being one of the top in Tommy John. So um, just really trusting him and trusting my faith with the Lord that everything was going to work out the way it did. And, um, yeah, blessed. All right, so uh, we'll end with this. The next step for you is the captain's camp mm-hmm. coming up in February, which will be your first time to really uh, hear from a lot of the people in the organization. They only bring uh, people to the captain's camp who they expect to be leaders of the organization going forward. So I'm sure that's a good feeling. Uh, the CEO of the team, uh, Marlins owner uh, Derek Jeter, uh, what's it going to be like hearing from him? Are you anticipating that? And, and some of the other people that he brings in, uh, Jorge Posada, part of the organization as well. I mean, it's always nice hearing from those guys, but I'm not really too sure what to expect yet since it's my first go around. Um, this will be my first full season, so I'm just excited to get to work because that's all I've done my whole life is just work, work, and work. And um, I'm just ready to get the opportunity to be able to work in, in that environment, and um, that's pretty much it. Good luck. Thank you. I appreciate it. Go Marlins, baby.